I'm going to pray one last time. We're just going to jump right into this. We are starting a new series this morning called The Hidden Kingdom. Um, this is something that's kind of was stirring on my heart even in the late fall as we were wrapping up going through the Bible in a year together last year. That after looking at the whole big picture, what if we slowed down and really looked at Jesus, listened to his word and the direction for life he gives us? And his primary message while he walked this earth was about the kingdom of God. That was his primary message. And so what if we actually purpose in our hearts to say, I want to be a part of that kingdom and I want to live in that kingdom. That's, that's where we're heading. That's where we're going. Um, and so let's pray and prepare our hearts and just invite him to teach us. You know, when we jump into the gospels, especially chances are good that if, if you've been a follower of Jesus, a Christian for a long time, that you're fairly familiar with the life of Jesus and his teachings. Um, and that's a good thing. You know, there's no reason to let go of past things that have been anchored and rooted in us. I would just encourage you, invite the Lord to, to enrich that. Invite him to solidify things you already know. Welcome him to teach you and stretch you a little bit. More than this being about a, a sermon or a set of sermons that are coming that I want to give, my real hope is that we position our lives daily to let Jesus be our guide and our teacher and our king. And so that's, that's, that's what we're doing this morning. So let's invite him to do that. Jesus, we look to you. We love you. We commit our heart and attention to you. We thank you that you are our savior. We could talk about you as the great sacrifice, as the lamb who was slain, as the son of God who came to earth and gave his life for us. We can and should talk about that forever. But Jesus, a key part of who you are as our savior is the door has now been opened for you to be our Lord, our master, our king. You saved us from something, but you saved us into something new, a new life in you, a life that leads on into eternity and never ends. God, may we learn more and more how to let you be the king of our lives. May we position ourselves to be your disciples, your apprentices, who follow you as our master and our guide. And so come and be our teacher this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So have any of you ever experienced the feeling of being really lost? Like, I have no idea where I am, and I'm not even sure how to get out of the situation I've gotten myself in. Anybody familiar with that? Um, one of the times in my life this felt the most real to me, um, over a decade ago now, my wife and I adopted our son Micah, and um, he was born in Ukraine. And so it, it was a process to adopt him. And so once all the paperwork had been completed, we'd done an initial trip. We were just waiting to hear back from the courts that he was officially our son. And because my wife had gotten pregnant, because that's what happens with us, we have six kids, um, she had gotten pregnant during this process. Um, the trip to pick him up and bring him home, I was going to take and just took another friend with me. Um, Amy had to stay behind. So... I go over there, I'm ready to pick up my son. I, I land in the capital city of Ukraine. I land in Kiev, or Kiev. I land there and realize really quickly as I'm standing there waiting for the rotating belt that was going around, 
that it appeared something was not going to show up, and that was my luggage. And so the trip's off to a great start. Now, for me, this was a little bit sketchy because I now have to get on a train in like half an hour and take a 10-hour train ride down to the coast of the Black Sea in the town of Odessa. And you know what information I had? The name of the guy I was going to meet in the parking lot who was going to take me to the train station and that a person who I did not know was going to meet me on the platform of the train station in Odessa to take me to the place I was staying that I didn't know. I was completely at the mercy of the people in Ukraine who were going to guide me. And so I now have a problem. I don't have my luggage and I don't know how to tell them where to send it. And so I'm in this office barely communicating with, you know, this airport employee. And I'm like, I don't know the address to give you. I, I don't know what to tell you. And so they're like, well, do you have a phone number? I was like, yes, Yulia. She's our, not only our translator, but she's the person that's been guiding us through this entire adoption process. Let's call Yulia. So I have her number. So I call Yulia. It rings, it rings, it rings. No answer. Okay, this is not good. So I call again, rings, it rings, it rings. I get this groggy hello, and she says, hello, this is Yulia. I say, oh, hey, Yulia, it's Jake Spencer, I'm here. We had met previously on the trip before, having a little trouble, da-da-da, I explain it. And she goes, you have the wrong number, and hangs up. I did not have the wrong number. I have no idea if she had just woken up, had forgotten, and so in that moment... I'm feeling truly lost. I have no guide. I don't speak the language. I don't have my luggage. I don't know where I'm going. I mean, it was like, as an adult, it was one of the most nerve-wracking moments of my life. I'm like, I am really stuck right now. That feeling of being lost and having no direction, when Jesus shows up on the scene, his primary message to everyone is, that's you. That's you. The problem is, far too often, we think we know exactly where we are and exactly where we're heading and exactly how to get there. We have a lot of confidence in our ability and our direction. And if we don't have that confidence, we've gotten really good at convincing ourselves and others that we do. We put on the good face and try to have it all together. But Jesus shows up with what he calls good news and says, you're truly lost. In fact, here's his primary message. All of the Gospels lay this out. We're just going to start in Matthew's Gospel this morning. Chapter 4, verse 17. Jesus has just finished being baptized by John the Baptist. He's gone in the wilderness and been tempted for 40 days by the, the devil. And he is now launching his ministry. And Matthew says it this way. Matthew 4, 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, how many of you guys have heard that phrase before? You've read that in the scripture, right? Very familiar to us. The problem is we don't realize how radical that statement is. So I want to I give it to you in another light. Dallas Willard, kind of, he phrases it this way. He describes Jesus' message this way. He says, this is essentially what Jesus is saying. The rule of God is now accessible to everyone. Review your plans for living 
and base your life on this remarkable new opportunity. That's what repent means. It means reconsider everything, reevaluate everything and change course. And what is available, think about what Jesus is offering. This person who grew up in a podunk town in the middle of nowhere shows up on the scene and says, God's kingdom is here. Repent and pursue that. That's a bold statement. And then his life immediately began to back it up. See, when Jesus declared this, his very life communicated God's kingdom is here. Here's how Matthew describes it just a few verses down. This is Matthew 4, verse 23 now. And he, Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel or the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. So it started in Galilee, and now the word's getting out. It's spreading throughout the entire region, all Syria. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures, and the paralytics. And he healed them. And great crowds followed him, from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Here's this man who shows up on the scene with a message. God's kingdom is available. He declared it boldly. He offered to people to reconsider how they were living their lives and live their lives allowing God to be their king. And then he didn't just say these words. He put it into action. Friends, somehow or another, we've, we've got to break out of just the mold of reading words on a page and imagine this scenario. Jesus shows up from Lenore City. This random guy who just grew up in this little town shows up and he starts saying, you need to completely change your life. God's kingdom is here. And then miraculous things begin to happen. Jesus shows up on the scene and so... He's making this kingdom life available to everyone. It's this open invitation. Okay, cool, that's great, Jake. Then why are you calling this series The Hidden Kingdom? Because while Jesus' invitation was open, he also made it clear that very few would actually find it. And I just, I want to challenge you to consider the possibility that Jesus meant what he said. So think about this now. He's shown up on the scene immediately after this description. He's preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Crowds are beginning to follow him because of the miracles. And immediately following this, we land at the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, now I'm not going to unpack the entire Sermon on the Mount this morning. We will look at it at various times throughout this series. But in chapters 5, 6, and 7, he delivers the Sermon on the Mount. Here's how it starts. He sees the large crowds, all the people gathering around. Verse 1 and 2 now, chapter 5. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, who came to him? You can say it louder. Who came to him? His disciples. His disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying... 
This happens over and over again in the scripture where Jesus is making an impact and then he retreats. He does the opposite of what you would do if you were trying to get a following. Like if you have a following, you're like, this is awesome. How do we keep it going and how do we add more? Instead, Jesus would retreat. So he would even be hidden. He would pull back and he'd retreat and some people would pursue. And so the disciples lean in. And so then he begins to unpack this entire stretch of like who he is, what he's about, what his primary message is. That's the the Sermon on the Mount. And in the middle of it, he says these words. These are probably familiar to many of us. Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. He's saying the kingdom is available. Here it is. Here's what it's like. Here's who I am. Here's what I'm doing. But then he says very few are actually going to find it. It's a narrow road, and it's a hard way, but it's the way that leads to life. Will we take him at his word? See, when we think about the way that Jesus communicated and then what our role is, we use the word faith, right? That's our role. I choose to believe what he's saying. It it requires faith. And somehow, because we know it requires faith, Sometimes we think that means what we're believing in is somehow vague. Or, or is, it even, is it even real? Guys, listen. Jesus is actually talking about reality. He says, I'm telling you about reality, maybe a deeper reality than you've ever known. There's a lot of people who are alive and breathing, but they're not really alive. They're living life in such a way that's going to lead to destruction. It's going to fail them. But there is a life available. The God who made everything has a life available for you. And you can find that way. But it's narrow and it's hard. The kingdom is real. It's available. But it's hidden. Now, this theme of it being hidden shows up over and over again. I just want you to see this in a couple of places. All right? So Jesus taught in parables. We all aware of that? He used parables. And often it gets communicated in church circles that these parables were really cool because Jesus was using real life analogies to help us understand what he was talking about. That the purpose of the parables was to help us see something through practical means, right? That often gets communicated. That is not the primary purpose of the parables. Matthew lays this out in Matthew chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. All these things Jesus said to the crowd in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. He was speaking in hidden terms. In fact, we'll see later He told his disciples, there's a reason I'm speaking in these hidden terms, and it actually is because people won't understand. 
wait, I thought Jesus came to make the kingdom available, so why would he speak in a confusing way so we wouldn't understand? Jesus is offering something precious, and he wants us to believe it's precious. He wants us to consider his words and consider his life and consider that I might be lost and that he's worth coming to to find hope and guidance and direction. See, Paul, Paul picks up on this theme. This wasn't just for the people of that time. If you're sitting here going, okay, Jake, like, I get it. These people had never heard of Jesus. He hadn't even died on the cross yet. Like, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. I'm sitting here in church this morning. Like, what does this have to do with me? Paul prayed for the church on this very same issue of the hiddenness of God's kingdom. Colossians chapter 2. We're going to pick this up right in the middle of him describing, this is what I'm praying for the church. Colossians 2, verses 2 and 3. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He's, Paul's saying for church folks, people who've met Jesus, people who believe he's the Savior, I'm praying for them to reach out, to grab hold of the mystery of God's kingdom, that we would have full understanding of who Christ is and what he has for us. And he says this about Jesus. He has all the hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This, this is the primary thing I want to talk to you guys about this morning. We'll, we'll talk more about why the kingdom is hidden and maybe how we engage in it more as we go along in this series. But I want you to hear this. The person at the center of the kingdom of God is Jesus. Do we really understand the fullness of who he is? How glorious he is, how much he has to offer. Paul is an intelligent guy. He is well-versed, well-taught. This isn't, and I'm not knocking Peter because I'm more like Peter. You know, Peter's a fisherman who discovered Jesus and Jesus changed his life. And Peter's a great example that any of us can follow Jesus, all right? Paul is a highly intellectual, well-educated man who is blown away at all that Jesus is. And when he looks at Jesus, he sees someone who holds a knowledge and a wisdom and an understanding that is unique in human history. And he asks us to consider who Jesus is and pursue what he has to offer. And so what I want to do is I want to walk you through a very specific title of Jesus this morning. This is the primary thrust of this message. It is this, Jesus as the master. Now, I want you to reconsider this word this morning. Because if you're like me, you know, we grew up here in America, and like the word master just has a bad connotation. It, it's associated with our history and slavery and all that. It's kind of, it's probably one of the primary things that comes to mind when we hear master. But that is not how this word is used to describe Jesus. It means something more and something different. The idea to have in our minds is the idea of a master and an apprentice. Someone who, 
who has a job or a vocation or a way of doing things, and they have achieved the highest level of that. And so an apprentice would come to them to be taught, to be guided, to learn that way. Okay, I want you to have that imagery. And so in the Gospels, you know, um, Jesus gets described, you'll see it as master or teacher, depending on the Bible translation you use. But there's actually three different words in the Gospels that kind of sit behind our English word for master. And so I want to look at these with you because they'll show us a deeper understanding of who Jesus is. All right, so the first one that we see the most often is this word that it gets translated teacher a lot and it gets translated master a lot. It's used 43 times in the Gospels to describe Jesus. And the the primary thrust of this word, it means instructor, it means guide, it, it can even mean doctor, like someone who has a PhD that's teaching you something. Okay, so this is someone who knows what they're talking about. They're smart, they're intelligent, they're educated, that's the implication. They're like a doctorate level teacher. And this word gets used to describe Jesus all the time. And I I think one of the saddest things in modern times is when we think of Jesus, you know, I might think of him as a servant. Um, I might even think of him as strong because he worked miracles. But I don't know that we put him on the list of the most intelligent people who've ever lived. Jesus was unbelievably intelligent and smart. And and he communicated things that no one else knew or understood. Like we need to appreciate Jesus as a teacher. And so I want to give you an example of this. He's, He's called master or teacher multiple times in this passage in Matthew 22. And the people using this word to communicate with him are the very people that felt threatened by him. It's the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so we're not going to read through the entire chapter, although it's really fascinating and worth reading because there's this back and forth dialogue. But the Pharisees come to Jesus, they ask him a question. Well, then they fail at trying to trap him. The Sadducees come in who didn't get along with the Pharisees. They come in, they try to trap him, they failed too. The Pharisees come back again with another question. They don't... They. They still, it still doesn't work. He answers them effectively. And then Jesus turns the tables and questions them. And so you have a glimpse of this interaction that's happening. Matthew 22, verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, Master, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. So we we hold you in high regard. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. So they're they're trying to puff him up a little bit, right? Like they're complimenting him. We see you as this highly intelligent guy, and you're not easily swayed by opinions. Like you know who you are, you know what you stand for, you know what you teach. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Well, the passage goes on to describe Jesus is aware that they're intending to trap him and make him look foolish. And so he answers their question brilliantly. And their response to his answer is this, verse 22. When they heard it, 
they marveled and they left him and went away. Guys, these are the influencers of the day. These are the thought leaders, philosophically, religiously. These are the people that, that everyone else looked up to to lead and guide them. And they were marveled at Jesus and what he had to say and how he communicated. And it left them speechless. They literally had to walk away. So then the Sadducees lean in and they do the same thing and they present him this question and he answers it. And listen to how everyone responded this time. Verses 33 and 34 now, same chapter. And when the crowd heard it, so other people are gathering around now, we gotta watch this. When the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. But when the Pharisees heard he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. They're like, all right, he shot them down again. Let's give it another shot. What can we do? And so they gather together. And while they're gathered together, look at this, verses 41 and then verse 46. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. He answered their questions brilliantly and flawlessly. And then he presented them a question and they couldn't answer Verse 46, and no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. That's a master. That's a master. You guys remember taking tests in school? How many of you loved the essay questions? Okay, a couple of brilliant ones of us raised their hand. I, I'm a multiple jo choice guy all day long, right? At least I've got a shot. You know, if I go with C, odds are good. I'm a multiple choice guy. Have you ever had to answer a test where you had to stand up and give the answer? Or maybe you're doing like a speech in class. This might be hard for you to believe because I get up here and preach on Sunday mornings. I hated speech class. If you actually knew me in like middle school and high school, it's pretty shocking actually that I'm a pastor who gets up and preaches like I did not want to do that I was uncomfortable with it, it was scary to me like when you're on the spot and you can be asked any question that that could be a really scary moment and what do you do you draw on your experience as best you can you know and if you can't you fake it till you make it Jesus put himself out there and he answered every question why because he knew what he was talking about. Because he knew even the most brilliant people on this planet who thought they had it all figured out, when it really came down to it, they're just as lost as the rest of us. He's the one with the answers. And in fact, he's the one that asks the questions. That's a master. That's a master. He was brilliant, he was intelligent, and he was offering real knowledge based in reality. Here's what life really is all about. Here's what you were made for, here's why. And he flipped things upside down constantly. I mean, we're gonna see this as we go. The things that he offered as the way forward, they're just totally upside down to the way that we would think. Friends, I want you to consider the brilliance of Jesus Christ. That as the unique son of God, he's got the answers to life. 
maybe you're sitting there going, Jake, I know that. I believe that. Cool. But like, how often do we then get lost trying to figure out our way as we go instead of coming to him and saying, God, you're the master. You're the God. What do you say about these things? Do I come to him with my questions and say, Lord, what do I do here? What decision do I make here? And am I willing to wait until the master speaks, until the master guides? Am I willing to take him at his word when what he says actually contradicts my way of thinking? That's what repent means. Maybe I should reconsider my way of thinking and consider his instead. Jesus is a brilliant master and teacher. All right, there's another word to describe him, and I love this. Okay, so Luke. Luke is one of the four gospel writers. Anybody know, what was Luke's vocation? He's a doctor. He's a master. He knows what he's talking about. And Luke would use this same word to describe him. He would use this word for teacher, guide, and doctor. But in the gospels, He's the only one that used an additional word for master to describe Jesus. And you know why I think he did that? Because as a doctor himself, he realized this guy's got something I don't. He's got something about him that goes beyond anything. I can't even use the same word I would use to describe me to describe him. He's got another level. And so Luke used this additional word. He used it 17 times. It only shows up in the Gospel of Luke to describe Jesus. And this word for master means something more like this, commander. In fact, it would often be used to describe the commander of the ship, like a captain. Anybody see master and commander? Yeah, that, that's the picture. It means commander. It means overseer, the one in charge. It can even be used to describe a king. So he looked at him and said, he's not only highly intelligent and well-trained, this guy has a special kind of authority. I want to give you a couple of examples of when Luke used this word. All right? Here's the first one. In Luke chapter 8, Jesus and the disciples set out across the sea and Jesus decides this is a great opportunity to take a nap. And so he's sleeping in the boat and a huge storm arises and the waves are crashing and the wind is roaring and professional fishermen who knew those waters were scared to death. Those who had mastered their boat and their craft and that sea said, oh boy, There's something going on here I am not comfortable or familiar with. This is not the first time these guys had been caught in a storm. This was something unique happening, and they were scared. And so their response is, we got to go to Jesus who's sleeping. And so Luke 8, 24, and they went and they woke him saying, Master, Commander, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves and they ceased and there was calm. Jesus wasn't just highly intelligent, he was incredibly powerful. Nature bows its knee to this master. 
That's Jesus. That's our master. Another example. Luke recorded a lot of Jesus' miracles, and he records one of them here. Luke 17, verses 12 through 14. And as Jesus entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance. And they lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, master, commander, that word, have mercy on us. You're the one in charge. We are sick lepers. Will you extend mercy on us as the one who's in charge? Verse 14, when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Jesus had power, has power. The master has power over the natural world. The master has power over our physical bodies to bring healing and wholeness. The master has power in the spiritual realm. The demons knew exactly who he was. In fact, often he'd tell them to be quiet because, you know, hidden kingdom. He would tell them to be quiet, to not reveal who he was. But they knew he was master. Highly intelligent, doctorate level stuff. And he has power. He's a commander. Okay, third word. This is a cool one, a special one. And I, I wish I could communicate this effectively for us as American hearers in a school gym in Knoxville. <laughs> I'm going to do my best, but it's this word rabbi. All right, you guys have seen the word rabbi in the scripture, right? It's this word rabbi. In some ways, it's a lot like the first word, teacher. But it's, it's very special and unique to the Jewish culture and heritage. And so there's, there's three forms of this word, okay? Now... This term, it is, it is teacher, but it, it's even a little bit more. It's, it's mentor. It's, it's a term of both respect. Like if I, give you, if I give you the title rabbi, it's a term of respect, but it's also a term of devotion. See, there's three forms of this word. The, the first form is just rab, which is just teacher, master. Rabbi means my teacher, my master. I respect you and I'm devoted to you. I have taken you on as my master. Of all the options I had, I picked you. And here's the cool thing, you picked me. See, rabbis could choose their mentees, their disciples, their apprentices. And so the people that were able to use the term, my master, to describe Jesus, it meant they had chosen him and he had chosen them. See the special nature and quality of this relationship? Rabbi. Now, Jesus, who was called rabbi often, in fact, it was used over 17 times of Jesus, um, he talks in this way to his disciples and he's both helping them understand their, the nature of their relationship, but also to have a proper view of him. Check this out. Matthew 23, verses 6 through 8. He's talking about um, the priests and the Pharisees. 
who love having the term rabbi used to describe them. And he's telling the disciples, you don't be like that. And so we're going to pick it up kind of in the middle of this conversation, verse 6. They, speaking about the priests and the Pharisees, they love the best places at feasts, the best seats in the synagogue, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But you do not be called Rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are the brethren. He's saying we can get all hung up on having titles and having accolades, but he said where the rubber meets the road is this, I am the true Rabbi. I'm the only one. And you don't need to get caught and wrapped up in titles or comparing yourself to other people. Just consider that I, I'm your rabbi. It's got that personal connotation to it. I'm your rabbi. You're mine. So, man, you're brothers. You're sisters. I'm your master. And I said there were three ways this word is used. There's an additional one. It's rabboni. You ever noticed that one before in the Gospels? Rabboni. You may have missed it because it only shows up twice. It only shows up twice. Only two people in the Gospels use this word of Jesus. But it goes beyond that. If we kind of broke out of the scripture and looked at the culture of that day, this word was almost never used. It was used for the absolute most elite of the elite. This is like... This is like rabbis who leave legacies that go on for generations that this word is applied to. And this word means, it still means my master, but it means my great master. My preeminent master. You're the ultimate master, but it still has that personal touch. You're mine. I have dedicated myself to you. You know the two people in scripture who saw Jesus as my great master, the first was a blind man. Blind Bartimaeus called out to Jesus and used this term to describe him. While he still could not see, he saw something no one else saw. Think about that. He knew the person's presence that he was in. There's the great master. And I'm calling out to him to be my great master, to see me and help me, to heal my blindness that I may see. Guys, that's our position. Whether we realize or not, Jesus, without you, I'm lost, I'm blind. Will you be my great master, the one who commands nature, the one who heals the sick and raises the dead, the one who has the ultimate answers to this life and the future life, to what's really going on in this world, why I'm here, who God is, what, what should my life be based upon, and to look at him in our blindness and simply just be able to cry out, my great master, help, help my blindness. The second person that used this term was a broken-hearted woman who, if you know her history, would be, have been looked down and rejected by the people around her. It's Mary Magdalene. 
And a couple days after her master gave his life, she finds herself in a graveyard, wanting nothing more than to honor her master, to honor his legacy and his life, and to mourn the loss of her master. And in her brokenness, she goes out early on a Sunday morning, and she finds his tomb is empty, and she's heartbroken. Somebody's taken him. Something, somebody's moved him. What's going on? And this guy appears, and she thinks it's a gardener. And he asks her, why are you weeping? What's going on? And she doesn't even fully recognize him. She doesn't get who he is. She doesn't realize it's Jesus in his resurrected body. And so she has this dialogue, and she's not seeing him for who he is. And then all of a sudden, in the midst of her tears and her struggle, he simply says this. John 20, 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. He did nothing but call her by name. And what was her response? She turned to him and said, my great master, the now risen one, the one she had given her life to follow the one who'd rescued and saved and forgiven her. And now he's standing there alive. He's defeated death. You know why I can go to my great master to figure out how to live this life? Because he beat death. Because he lives forever. So like maybe he knows what he's talking about. And she stands in awe of him and calls him my great master. Friends, my prayer for you and I is that we would live our lives in such a way where we look at Jesus and we say, Jesus, you're my great master. You've got the answers and you've got the power and the authority and you love me enough that you have personally called me to yourself. Your kingdom is available. You can be my master. You can be my commander. You can be my king. You can be my teacher, my doctor, my guide. The great master of the universe can be my rabbi. And the beauty of the hiddenness of God's kingdom is that he keeps himself just enough hidden so we have a choice. We'll talk more about that in future weeks, but I don't even think we realize it, that some of the things that make it hard to see God at times, that it's for our benefit. He says, I'm here and I'm available. Will you trust me and come to me? And so our move, our action, is to move towards him. To say, you're the master. I want to be the apprentice. I, I want to close with this. I'm going to skip down, Julie, to, back to Matthew 13. Now, I want you to hear what Jesus says here to his disciples. The people who called him master and meant it the ones who gave their lives to follow him. Matthew 13, 10 and 11, and then we're going to skip down and read verses 15 and 16. So the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Verse 15, for this people's heart has grown dull. 
and with their ears they can barely hear, and with and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal him. He says the majority of the people, they've just they've tuned me out. They don't give me the time of day. They've grown deaf. They've grown blind. If they would just see that they could turn, they could repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. They could turn and they'd be healed. They'd find the way to life. But blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. What does it take to be an apprentice? Well, first of all, it takes a master. And we have a master that is brilliant and powerful and willing to have us. He's willing to have us. What does it take to be an apprentice? A committed and curious follower. committed and curious follower. Someone who will actually seek out the master. That will set aside time to sit at his feet and learn from him. Friends, God's kingdom is readily available. But Jesus said the way is narrow. And few find it. We have access to the master. Will I commit my life to following him that he might become my great master. Friends, I hope you're not hearing this this morning and just thinking like, this is kind of just a salvation message, right? Like I've already given my life to Jesus. Friends, I'm talking about what we do with the course of our daily lives. Am I living my life in such a way where it is my, my habit, my routine to come to Jesus in all his brilliance, in all his glory, in all his power, and realize like he is, he's accessible. And he wants to guide me in this life right here, right now, that his kingdom is available to me every day. I can live with him as the king and me as a follower. It's available to me. Am I signing up for that every day? Jesus, you be my great master. You be my guide. I'm going to leave you with these words. Here's the beauty of what happens when we, when we go to him. Again, in the book of Colossians, chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, if you're already a follower of Jesus, if you've been raised with Christ, then seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated, at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Friends, when we seek the hidden kingdom, we don't just find Jesus. We find ourselves. We discover who we really are. 
who we're meant to be and how we're meant to live. It's found in him and him alone, the brilliant and powerful great master, Jesus Christ. In the coming weeks, we're going to look more specifically at what it means for us to live as an apprentice of Jesus. I hope this morning will be a reminder, an inspiration, and an encouragement to make him our master every day. He's our God. He's our king. He's our master. Let's follow him. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for just a few minutes together this morning to behold you. Jesus, thank you for who you are as teacher, guide, commander, king. And Jesus, thank you that you love us and you call us to yourself. Thank you that you save and thank you that you lead. God, I pray that we would live our lives in such a way we do, that we realize we don't have to be the brilliant ones. We don't have to be the powerful ones. We can just be those who look to you and follow you. God, if there's anything that has been clouding our vision, Lord, you know the demands on us. The demand for our time, our thoughts, our attention the worries and cares of this life and all the turmoil that swirls around us. You know that our eyes and ears are fought for. God, anything that has been blinding us, anything that has been causing us not to hear you, Lord, we take up the words of blind Bartimaeus and we cry out to you and just say, my great master, help me. Heal my blindness, that I may hear your voice call my name, that I may see you for who you really are and follow you all the days of my life. It's in Jesus' name we pray this morning.